Hello, and welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. Happy New Year, and I hope you had an excellent break over Christmas. This week, we're joined by Dr. Caitlin Harvey, who will be discussing her paper entitled Eureka, Gold Rushes, Universities and Globalisation, 1840 to 1910. The chapter is drawn from Caitlin's upcoming book project, Bricks and Mortarboards, University Building in the Settlement Empire, 1840 to 1920, which is due for release in late 2024. Caitlin's an early career research fellow of Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, focusing on the entwined histories of migration, race, settlement and indigenous people. Caitlin's work examines the institutional and political development of settler colonies in a British imperial and global context. Joining us as well is Rob O'Sullivan, a PhD candidate at Cambridge University. Rob is a historian of Irish immigration to America. His work seeks to understand how different immigrant newspapers constructed Irish-American identities in relation to a wide variety of global events, including the 1848 revolutions, the Indian Rebellion of 1857 and the Opium Wars. Both Caitlin and Rob's projects are truly global in scope and we're delighted that they're both able to join us today. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm your host, Hugh Wood, a PhD candidate at Sydney Sussex College. So, hello, uh, Happy New Year, welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. It is the 20th of January, we're in a basement room in Cambridge. It's cold, but we don't really have any windows, so we can't feel the weather at all. So today we've got Caitlin Harvey with us, and as well Rob O'Sullivan, who is a PhD student here. Um, and Caitlin is going to be talking about her paper, uh, Eureka, Gold Rushes, Universities and Globalisation, 1840 to 1910. So thanks uh, to both of them for coming in. And I'm just going to start by asking Caitlin to introduce the paper to, for those who've uh, not had the chance to read it. So Caitlin, what's this paper about? Uh, when and where are we in the world? Um, what's the kind of crucial interventions that you think it's making? And where does it kind of fit into the larger projects that you're working on? Okay, great. Um, Thanks for having me on, and thank you for that introduction, Hugh. Um, The paper covers a set of public universities that open after 1848 um, across California, South Africa, parts of Canada, and Australasia. And I connect these universities to sort of a crucial element of their founding, which is the gold rushes um, that occur. And I call them the Goldfield Foundations for that reason. Um, So there's sort of a twin dynamic to this story. The gold rushes themselves were connected. um, Ergo, many of the governments or new settler governments are able to charge licensing fees or excise fees that really go directly into that university building. At the same time, universities themselves aren't neutral knowledge producing institutions and they prop up the mining industry that initially propped up them. So one of the contributions of a study like this is really to understanding forms of extractive capitalism and globalization that prop up new institutions um, and other connections that are being made um, in this field. Um, But it's a contribution to sort of studies of colonial wealth and their connection to institutions. Um, Yeah, so... We've got a lot of countries on the go here. So whereabouts in the world are we? We've got California, South Africa. So there's different contexts there, like Imperial British context, as well as kind of American westward expansion. So do you want to speak about that for a moment? 
Yeah, I mean, okay, so the universities that might be a part of this categorization include the University of Melbourne, University of Sydney, University of California, um, University of British Columbia, University of Otago, and it's really the universities that without the gold rush might not have been founded as quickly or in this period at all. So it's the speed of their formation as much as it is their formation at all. It's partly a, you might group it in the sense of a British world study, but even more broadly, these sort of Anglo world connections. Um, and I'll lean on sort of Jamie Belich, another scholar, to say that it's, it's not exclusively an Anglophone world, but it is an Anglo-prone world. Caitlin, thank you. Um, so I wanted to start off by asking on that very note about what do you think this uh, broader world historical framework uh, offers to your study that, that a purely national one doesn't? Uh, what does a comparison of, say, what's happening in South Africa or in parts of Canada illuminate uh, the study of what's happening in California or in Australia? And in creating this larger framework, is there a risk that we might flatten out important distinctions between those same places? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think what I have to prove or the sort of stakes that I've set up for myself in this project is really saying that there's something about this scale of analysis that shows historians you know, a piece of the story, an explanatory framework that they couldn't get at the level that you've mentioned, either the local, regional, state or provincial, national level. And I think there's payoff to that because the gold rushes themselves are this transnational framework. They flow in imperial networks and sometimes national networks, but that capital isn't quite as bounded. Once you get gold out of the ground, of course, it can move into global markets. So I think there is something about that that's important or distinctive, a new way of looking at that. At the same time, I do use a lot of university biographies or national histories, um, and those stories have been told before. They're important. And what I'm saying is that each university founding from gold rushes is distinctive, but none are entirely anomalous. There's this connection of universities. We might think of other university connections, like the Red Brick or Civic Foundation universities in Britain, or the Sandstone universities in Australia. They're really connected just by sort of a time period, um, but maybe also by some governmental intervention. And I'm connecting these universities because I think it's helpful to think of them together because, I mean, their foundations are, are linked. Thank you. And, and moving on from that, which debates in the historiography of either gold rushing or educational foundation, would you say that this project particularly speaks to you? You mentioned Jamie Belich in your, in your previous answer. And would you say that he is one of the top historians that you think your work is, is enriching previous scholarship? And, and also, would you see yourself primarily then as a historian of uh, higher education, of settler colonialism, of, of world history broadly, all three, something else? Uh, to be crude, what label would you put on yourself? Well, I think you can have perhaps more than one label just because, I mean, in life or in the for the historical actors that I study, I mean, they themselves fit into more than one of those labels that you mentioned. Um, this is a study that does fit into some of the sort of imperial world or British world framework set by scholars like Jamie Bellich or John Darwin. Um, but it also, I mean, fits into settler colonial and indigenous studies. And those fields can be used to really critique one another in profitable ways. 
ways. Um, so that's also part of part of this scholarship. Um, and yes, the history of higher education, I think, has been going in new directions over the past 10 years, not just because um, there's been studies of extractive capitalism and institutions, but there's also been studies of slavery in universities, of indigenous dispossession in universities, um, perhaps starting with the Brown University sort of report uh, on slavery in the early 2010s. Um, yeah, thanks for those answers. Very illuminating. So to just move away from the framing of the project and more towards events on the ground, um, what were the kind of necessary conditions for a gold rush, gold rush university to be founded? Why do some gold rushes have them, but some don't? So this is a this is a great question. Um, it's not actually necessary. I mean, some places have gold rushes. You can think of Dawson City, but don't necessarily found universities. I mean, the rush, as always, is not actually about the presence of gold. It's about the rush of the people to the gold. This seems obvious, but I mean, many indigenous populations know about the presence of gold for a very long time before settlers and other forms of uh, migrant migrant peoples um, are able to use that gold or have it contribute in a way um, to the global economy. Um, so I think that um, it's more, you need a, a sort of basic infrastructure there. Some of the wealthiest sort of philanthropists who will donate to universities are actually minefield suppliers, and they're not the miners on the field. So you need a, a network that will communicate news about gold. You need a basic infrastructure that will be able to trap gold profits, um, and really some way to get the people there. Those are all the sort of things that that predict that. But I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not saying gold is the sufficient condition. There are many others, just that it's the necessary one. It is necessary that there be money to founding universities as much as we think of them as, you know, intellectual institutions. Um, and just to follow up slightly, at what kind of stage would a gold rush university appear? So like how long into the rush? Is it five years, 10 years, 15, 20? Like, when does it happen? Ooh, that's an exactitude sort of question, uh, but it's a good one. Um, I think most of the rushes, I mean, it's 1848 for the California rush, and you really have the College of California that's getting going by the late 1860s and transitioning to a university in the 1870s. Um, so that's not quick, that's not like the next day. Um, although in the British Empire, I mean, it's not too far after that period that you have the University of Sydney, it's only maybe five years. Um, after its gold rush that it's founded. Um, so there is some variation there. Um, I'm not sure there's anything that, you know, one-to-one -one predicts that, um, but you do have to have, I mean, California didn't really have an infrastructure there to capture all of those gold profits in a way that um, various Australian or Canadian or even South African places, the University of Cape Town, University of Witzwatersrand, um, do. And there's also different laws governing these places. So U.S. law has different, um, you know, sort of rules relating to surface and mineral rights um, than in the British Empire when gold is the preserve, of course, of the crown. Caitlin, one thing that comes through reading your paper is the extraordinary demographic changes that accompany gold rushing. And with demographic change then comes social transformation. So I'm wondering, looking at your paper, to what extent do you see the foundation of these universities as an exercise in social control after these massive demographic changes? 
Uh, is this an exercise in regulating the social structures of these incipient societies and setting the terms of what type of population that we're trying to create? That's a great question. Um, and I think actually the sort of social imperatives are really important to the to the use of gold in these universities in the first place. I mean, you have waves of new migrants and a lot of those are Asian migrants. Um, and the crucial thing for many of these initial sort of usually white settler populations is, you know, recreating a social and sometimes ecclesiastical hierarchy in an institution. Um, and in Melbourne, you even have, you know, worries um, of this Asian influx and creating institutions that will sort of maybe hold off that tide. So it is very important, those old world values, even the gold rushes themselves seem to throw class distinctions into flux. So if you can become rich very quickly that threatens, I mean, landholders and, and a hierarchy that is um, British or English in distinction. So that's a great question. Thank you. You mentioned in your paper uh, the case study of the Eureka Cascade in Australia in 1854, which from the work I've done on, on, on similar topics to that, there's very much a, a fear involved that that moment for, for the British imperial state represents the sort of pathogen of European or kind of American style rioting and chaos coming through into this space. So would you see that to, as, in a sense, part of the reason for one of these universities is to prevent that sort of danger spreading through communities with a, with a firmly established uh, university system to educate members of, of how to behave in a new society? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to frame it. I think it's important to note that there are a lot of scares for the British Empire and for British imperial administrators in the in the 19th century, one of which you've mentioned, the Eureka Rebellion, so this revolt of of miners against a sort of autocratic British-backed government um, or the hold of it over gold fields. I mean, there's also, of course, the Indian Mutiny in 1857. There's going to be the Jamaica Rebellion in 1865. This is a moment of imperial crisis um, that really does you know, invoke a response or sometimes what scholars of the British Empire think is this transition to a more, a less liberal empire, a more despotic empire in the late 19th century. Um, so I think that is a, a way to, to look at that or phrase it, but universities respond to that as do other institutions that are built, um, which might include botanical gardens, libraries, um, observatories, um, and institutions that um, support music, all to sort of create a new sort of um, hierarchical bend. They're not entirely elite institutions because many of them will get um, middle class or even agricultural students. Um, so there's a real fight. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the professors uh, in these new institutions are British and Irish, but their students are not um, directly from Britain or Ireland, often they're born in those colonies. So there is sort of a, a struggle in this period over whether it will be a sort of elite settler institution or will there be this form of white settler populism, we might call it. Yeah, I mean, my question was going to be who are the students of these places, but you've gone some way to answering that. Um, so who kind of won in that? battle between elitism and populism about who can attend. Um, and if there are patterns of attendance, um, are you seeing similar things in both the American context and then the British imperial contexts as well? Or are there differences across those um, locations? So that's great. I think there's a couple we can unpack that 
uh, a little bit. So who won the fight? I think some some scholars would say that fight is still sort of going. Who are universities for? Um, do they represent? What kind of value propositions do they represent to their communities? And how connected are they really to the local versus the global? They do become global institutions. They share a lot of information, but they obviously exist as we all do on a local level. Um, so I suppose the, the type of student doesn't, students don't always uh, start at these institutions from the moment of their foundation. It often takes a little while to, to build the buildings or for them to look like the universities we have today. Um, we wouldn't really think of them, there's sort of the 20th century or 21st century behemoth university. Somewhere like the University of Wisconsin has one student initially in its graduating class. So we really have to think about them more as sort of like modern day high schools spread really far apart. Um, and some scholars who do some interesting work as well with the academics I mentioned earlier are Tamsin Peach. Um, and she really looks at, at the academic networks that are connected there and really contra the sort of student networks. Um, for the Morrill Act, which establishes the land-grant universities like the University of California, they're mandated to offer agriculture and the mechanic arts, but they do not initially. They start, of course, with the classics and liberal arts, and it's a really slow-moving revolution for them to become um, or to open up to different subjects. Fascinating, fascinating. So in my own work, uh, I look at Irish-American immigrants in the mid-19th century in the United States, and, and particularly their experience of ethnic and religious and cultural discrimination and persecution. And so I wanted to pick up on what you mentioned of how many of the uh, attendees or, and professors come from a British or Irish context. So what are the religious dynamics at play here? Um, I'm assuming when you're talking about particularly the British imperial world, you're talking about Protestant Irish migrations that we know from the work of people like David Fitzpatrick. But were there institutional constraints on who could attend these universities, for example, uh, based on their religion or their backgrounds? Or did this, uh, being on, as, on a sort of frontier location, allow for or demand more openness in terms of mission? So that's, uh, that's very interesting, as does your own research. Sounds great, Rob. Um, so I guess I, I'd say... Most of, I mean, universities are really founded in this period to train clerics and teachers. Um, they have a, an explicit connection to the church just as English universities do their, the Church of England institutions. And it takes a while in Britain and also in these places to have that separation. Um, for the United States, that separation between a religious theological college comes with the 1819 Dartmouth case um, versus public institutions. Um, for the Gold Rush universities, they're part of that bigger trend. Gold doesn't necessarily dictate that they have any different reaction to religion, but gold itself is seen as this religious quantity. So many settlers think of themselves themselves going to the gold rushes searching for something called Ophir, for instance, which is King Solomon's biblical city of gold. You will find many, many towns named Ophir or Eureka or some combination um, of those themes uh, in the 19th century. Um, so there is sort of a religious connection there. Many of these institutions also have religious tests for entry. So you have to declare an allegiance to the 39 articles of the Anglican Church um, in order to, to attend. That will mostly drop off by the later latter period of the 19th century as they become non-sectarian. 
And the reason they do that is largely because of the demographic changes you've mentioned. It's really hard for the educational order of Britain to reestablish itself in its empire. And of course, in America, where you have huge numbers of Catholic, um, either Italians or Irish people. Um, so these open up because they need to do that. Uh, largely to survive. The last thing I'll say about that is many of these places have women earlier. Um, so they have co-education sooner. Um, and I would, inclusion is not necessarily integration in the institutions, but those women often um, can pay money or tuition fees. And they also argue, especially on a class basis, that they are you know, of a similar class with men who usually enter universities. And when they see more working class men enter, women of an upper middle class status say, actually, I should be above, I should be above or first before that man. Um, and that sort of changes into the early 20th century about their actual integration. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so to talk about my own work now, I look at a gold rush in Idaho um, which happens kind of in the wake of California in the 1860s. So that rush was kind of incredibly violent for indigenous populations whose lives were massively disrupted by the coming of the miners and the towns, camps, institutions. So how can we kind of centre that disruption in the way that we tell the stories of gold rushes and the institutions that accompany them? Um, you mentioned, for example, the rapid rise of the non-indigenous population in California, but not the accompanying and equally rapid decline of the native population during that same period. So that's great, Hugh, and I will be interested to read your Gold Rush pieces uh, on Idaho. And I mean, in many of these instances, the, the knowledge from one Gold Rush site feeds very directly into another. Um, many of these sites start off as alluvial mining, so where you can directly pick up or pan for gold in rivers, and they become in a sort of second phase deep lead mining, which is a much more destructive type of mining um, when the ore is buried deep underground. But it also sort of dictates that earlier question you asked about, you know, do you need a gold rush or how easy it is to get the gold into a university? It really depends what type of rush it is. Where indigenous populations are concerned, I mean, as I mentioned before, many of them are crucial to actually starting a rush. And at the same time, I mean, food sources are often challenged by miners' presence. We can think of the sort of conflicts over the Fraser River in British Columbia and salmon runs there. Um, gold mining disrupted that. Um, gold mining also produces, I mean, um, it uses sort of different reagents, one of which is cyanide, um, which often poisons water. Um, there's something in Johannesburg called the Cyanide Club that develops in the 19th century um, to really spread knowledge about using cyanide for gold filtration. And a lot of those do impact indigenous communities in a huge way, even outside the migration of peoples. One thing we can do, I mean, that we sort of get from indigenous history or indigenous scholars is challenge the normative quality and the sort of heroic narratives of settlers who discover gold. Um, those discovery moments um, shouldn't be sort of left there to seem like they are natural. Um, the other thing we do is talk about what the university produces and how that changes indigenous landscapes much, much farther into the 20th and 21st century and today. Um, all of that we have sort of accepted and haven't questioned um, in a sort of thorough way. And I think that's something we can contribute to the period of indigenous history without even having to get into indigenous experiences of that, those difficult and violent periods. Kaylin, in your 
paper, there was a particularly interesting bit about indigenous knowledge and how um, very much this question of the discovery of gold is refracted through a Western mindset when you note how many indigenous communities in these areas were fully aware that there was some something there, uh, whether they understood it as gold or, or not, it's kind of hard to, to, to infer. But is part of this story also a supplanting of one form of, of knowledge for another with the foundation of universities uh, a kind of restriction on the known in order to uh, set the terms of what it is to be living in a gold rush environment? Yeah, I think in, in many ways, um, these universities, because of their connection to mining engineering, but also to agriculture, um, will really set aside indigenous ways of land caretaking and of thinking and and being about about land for systems that that are part of a settler desires and settler sort of knowledge processes. Um, so this happens with mining engineering again, but also of course with agriculture. Many of these universities will have experimental farms, um, extension programs, demonstration trains, and those are about mining, but of course also about agriculture. We might think of the Iowa corn gospel train, if I had to give one example, which really takes seed varietals out to many of the farmers of Iowa um, and really changes the landscape that you that you might plant there. Um, I think one thing I said about indigenous knowledge is that many, um, I mean, many indigenous populations knew this was there, but it didn't necessarily have an immediate use. The use of gold to a sort of global economy, I mean, it's, it's the major, the gold standard in the 19th century, it's propping up international currencies, um, is it entirely a different sort of level of significance. But I do think that what you're saying about maybe the supplanting of one knowledge system or the power of one knowledge system, the violent power of one knowledge system is, is very significant in this period. Um, so there has been a movement toward recognizing the legacies of slavery and indigenous dispossession in public monuments, universities, uh, public buildings generally. Um, you know, our very own Bobby Lee, for example, has looked at land-grant universities um, and Cambridge just a few months ago released a report on the university's relationship to slavery in the past. Um, your work seems to have the capacity to push those conversations in interesting directions. So what would you like a popular audience to take from the work that you do? It's an interesting question and, and certainly not a simple one. And I think that the work of Bobby Lee, who's also here, and Tristan Atone um, on the Moral Act and land-grant universities uh, is very powerful and really adds to the conversations that historians and the public ha have been having about how institutions are formed. Um, on one level, we can look at this, the conversations of, of slavery and others as, you know, maybe an academic debate. On another, it's really important to know how these institutions are founded. I mean, they're powerful institutions today, universities. Um, they have a lot of clout. Um, so I think it's just significant to a public to have an explanatory framework for how they were funded. It can also guide present day considerations about philanthropy and universities, which are almost always a hot button topic. Um, who funds these programs and who do they serve? I mean, at one level, the land grant universities in the United States are conceived of as um, 
like universities that run a state. There are state universities and they're for the people in a particular state. That's probably been challenged somewhat in recent decades, certainly by the fact that the state university used to be, in the 19th century, the single largest line item in state budgets, and that's no longer true. So those questions haven't really ended. How do we fund universities and, and what are the sources of that funding? Um, one other way to look at this is there are many drives or activists who are looking at um, separating certain lines of funding from universities. So fossil fuel divestment um, is perhaps one example of that, but there are other forms of, of divestment. And there are many uh, universities that are still invested in land. We might here think of the University of Texas um, which still has 2.1 million acres um, of land and controls the oil underneath it. Caitlin, I have a question about you yourself as a historian. How do you go about promoting yourself as a historian with expertise in both American and British imperial history? Um, many of our listeners might be doing projects that don't fit that neatly within national boundaries. So what advice would you give to them for, say, applying for a job uh, as a historian who doesn't quite know how to position themselves in the academic world? I think that, that well, that's an excellent question and not another easy one. Um, I think I've often promoted myself as a historian of empire, uh, whether that's American empire or the British empire. Um, but I mean, when you speak to different audiences, often you can bring up different things about your research, and that's the nature of being an academic as well. I mean, you highlight uh, certain pieces for an American audience that you might not for a Canadian audience, or a Kiwi audience, or an Australian audience, or indeed a, a South African audience. Um, so it's important to actually position yourself or think about, I mean, everyone does this, who, who will be the listener? Who will be the, the person you want to direct your application to, your grant application, your job application, whatever whatever it is. Um, but largely I go with historian of empire. Um, you can usually define yourself, I should add, also with, with the methods. We see many historians who represent themselves as historians of digital humanities today, or historians of higher education, or in a particular way. That's another way to frame this, um, I think. Um, and can be a profitable one. So historian of empire first, and whoever I'm talking to second. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so again, this maybe is for the historians in the audience, um, but on a kind of logistical and also, I guess, theoretical level, how do you manage a project like this? You've got such diverse archives scattered all over the world. You'll have different types of sources. How do you marshal them effectively? Um, and I guess you ever have moments where you just think, I wish I'd just picked California or something. <laughs> oh, all, all the time. Um, but I'd say first, um, you're not necessarily, you don't have to be the master of everything. You can lean on colleagues um, for, you know, recommendations, help, um, and really expertise in these fields. And I have done that um, over the past six or seven years looking at this topic. Um, the other thing I did was it's easier to compare financial data and you can use Excel or any platform to do that. And that allowed me to look at some of the qualitative information in a, in a different way. I often say to people that it's really hard to sometimes trust what university administrators say. Um, because whether or not that actually happens on the ground is a different story. Looking at some of the budgetary records can help you with that. 
quite a lot. The other thing, and I mentioned this earlier, is these universities aren't as big as we think they are in the period that I study them. I mean, many of them have like 10 students at most. Um, so they're really a much smaller entity and they only, you know, start growing really by the sort of early 20th century. They're easier to study. Um, but I did use a lot of archival information. So there were about, for this, for the Goldfield Foundations, it's, you know, say 10 to 12 universities for a, the larger book project. Um, it's many more universities. Um, and I think that there is a payoff to looking at them sort of together in this way. Some days I wish it was fewer, but most days um, I'm happy to have that information. Why don't we finish with a slightly uh, tongue-in-cheek question maybe. Uh, would you, do you think that there is uh, a modern day equivalent to the Gold Rush University? Are we likely in the next few years to see Silicon Valley universities or crypto colleges uh, in the near future? Do they already exist? Uh, or is there something particularly distinctive about the moment in history that you're studying? I'd say perhaps the, the particular resource is distinctive to a period of time. I think we could certainly find various oil-based universities um, and that that would be something. Uh, in this moment, we also actually, or today, we see the expansion of those initial universities again into sort of satellite campuses. And sometimes those are connected to, to particular pots of money. So you might see NYU abroad somewhere or satellite campuses in the Middle East or in China. And those are connected to particular types of funding. Um, I don't know about crypto in the university. I think it's perhaps, you know, too early to say, but when historians have access to looking at the types of philanthropy in particular, um, I think that'll be an interesting question. The other ways are simply government funding uh, and land-based funding would raise some interesting sort of problematics. So I do think there are other, other major commodities that define universities, but um, the question today will be getting hold of, of those records. Perfect. So I think we've reached the end there. So I just want to thank Rob um, for helping out and, of course, Caitlin for coming in and taking the time to speak with us. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah. and that was Dr. Caitlin Harvey discussing her new research on Gold Rush Universities. We look forward to the book's release next year. Term has begun in earnest, so be on the lookout for new podcasts very soon. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you stay well.